0: launching a brand new newsletter 11fs unfiltered is a fortnightly installment of hard-hitting opinions on all things financial services every fortnight a brutally honest no holds barred take on a hand-picked topic from one of our experts will make its way to your inbox to hear from some of the brightest minds at 11fs and join the conversation head to bit.ly forward slash unfiltered newsletter now mlb isn't just another hard to remember acronym It stands for Minimum Lovable Brand, the 11FS approach to creating modern, iterative brands to help cut through the noise and create a genuine connection with customers and their culture. Brand is everything in this digital first world, and we want to help you get it right. To learn more about Minimum Lovable Brand and to download our free handbook, head to bit.ly forward slash 11FSMLB.
1: Welcome to this roundup episode of FinTech Insider. My name is David Breer and today we will be revisiting the biggest stories from the past year and recap the stories that really stuck out to us. I mean, I think my my first suggestion of this was we just scrap 2020 and go to 2021, but uh, unfortunately, uh, we've gone with with plan Plan B because uh, there was some good things, wasn't there? And we'll uh, we'll walk down memory lane today. Uh, to go through this, I'm joined by some super awesome guests, as always. Uh, making his FinTech Insider debut, we have Adam Hardy, uh, who is the VP of Marketing at Current. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, Adam. Can you uh, start off by maybe just giving us a little bit of an overview about Current?
2: Thank you very much, David. Uh, and hey, it's, it's, it's an honor to finally join here. Uh, and sure thing, uh, Current, Current's a U.S.-based challenger bank. Uh, we, we serve Americans who've been overlooked by traditional banks. Um, what that means is, uh, hey, if you are a working professional with, with a substantial annual salary uh, you know, here in the U.S., you can essentially walk into any branch of, 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 a, of some national bank and, and get decent banking service. The tech might not be there, uh, but you're not going to be charged tons of fees, right? Um, for the other half of the country, that's not the case, right? Uh, they're, they're, they're being hit with uh, minimum balance requirements, fit maintenance fees, um, you know, they're, they're, they're paycheck to paycheck. We got about 130 million or so uh, folks in this country who are paycheck to paycheck. Who, you know, by their very nature, right, they're near zero balance so they're getting hit with overdraft fees. Um, and, and that's who we aim to serve. Uh, we, you know, for for that that for that that part of the country, uh, the banking system, as we know, it's very broken, um, and it's really not built to serve them from from an infrastructure standpoint uh, onwards. Uh, and so that's that's really who we're focused on. Um, so obviously, we don't have uh, any any overdraft fees. Except, uh, it, it, in fact, it's it, it's quite the opposite. We allow people to overdraft, uh, you know, up to hundred dollars with 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 no fees associated with that. Um, and we have no minimum balance requirements or or, or anything like that. Our, our fundamental business model is structured um, differently, right? We aren't you know structured around uh, wanting to collect deposits and 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 valuing ourselves as a bank. That way, we're structured much more around spend. Uh, and obviously, the efficiencies will come in. Uh, that, that, that come with being a startup building, our own big infrastructure and blah, 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 blah. I can go into it forever. Uh, but in short, uh, that's that's that, that's who we are. We're based here in New York, um, have an office downtown with about uh, 60 people here.
1: Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Adam. Uh, and uh, yeah, we've been uh, admirers from a distance for, uh, for a while, which sounds a little bit seedy, I'm not going to lie. So I uh, didn't mean that as weird as that came off. Uh, next up, we have Cat Mann, who is the head of PR at Nutmeg. How are you doing, Cat?
3: I am very good. Thank you.
1: How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. I mean, cold, like Christmas is very much sort of kicking in. But uh, other than that, I mean, do you want to give us a bit of an overview of, of who Nutmeg are uh, for our international listeners?
3: Yeah, of course. So um, Nutmeg is the first UK digital wealth manager, also sometimes referred to as robo-advisor, although it's not a term we particularly love, partly because the office is lacking in robots. Um, So it's a little bit of a misconception and I feel the 150 people we employ are slightly sort of... Annoyed if we overlook them in the process, Uh, but we are an investment service, so helping UK investors with anything from a stocks and shares ISA to junior ISAs for their kids or pensions and getting them sorted for retirement.
1: Very, very good. Uh, Last but no means least, we have Mr. Chris Skinner. I mean, author, speaker. I mean, not executive director of the best company in the whole world as well. Like,
4: you know, what what more can you want, Chris? Thank you very much for joining us. How are you doing? Good to be here, David and Uh, Non-executive director of 11FS, as you say, the best company in the world. And this is the season which I always find incredibly difficult because my family keeps saying Christmas do this, Christmas do that, Christmas do all sorts. (laughs) Yeah,
1: you get cards like for you, to you, about you, don't you? Which is which is fantastic. But uh, there you go. All right. Well, let's um, let's start with a bit of a sort of a trip down memory lane, shall we? Let's uh, get to. I, I think if we can take it back to January and February time, where we're all feeling pretty comfortable with life, none of this COVID stuff had really happened just yet, had they? But uh, I mean, it's safe to say 2020 has been a year very much like no other, doesn't it? It feels uh, almost every story at the moment is coming out uh, really around fintech uh, being something that has happened because of or despite kind of everything that's happened with the pandemic. So how we see it really the the biggest event to come out of the pandemic this year is really just accelerated digital transformation. We know a lot of fintechs are seeing massive upticks, you know, when there was no branches, nobody could go in and do things in branches. And actually for for the banks it's been a massive accelerant to understand really where the issues have been, uh, particularly when it comes to their digital transformation, but for fintechs it's really shown uh, actually what the opportunity is when you're to your point, Adam, earlier on when you're building with today's technology and building up from, you know, first principles of actually what financial services is, which is really exciting. Uh, you know, digital transformation plays a, a gigantic agenda on the uh, the incumbents uh, roadmaps for sure. Uh, and, and I think in terms of that um, that space, you know, it is such a broad category, really, so many multitude of sins gets thrown into, uh, it's on our digital transformation roadmap. But we're going to be sort of dividing this first part really into three main sections, uh, looking at really how both the customer and bank habits have been forced to be changing. With uh, can we call can we call COVID a pivot in strategy? I think that's probably taking the term pivot to quite uh, quite extreme levels, isn't it? So uh, so maybe starting from the beginning then. So from the start of the crisis, COVID nineteen has forced banks and their customers to use digital tools and processes to really compensate for branches, offices, call centres, all of that physical stuff. Really, sort of going away. Um, we've seen spending habits immediately change with cash use really plummeting over this period of time uh if anything i mean i've seen all payments usage uh, in the Breer household very much fall away still not entirely sure where my wallet is but don't need it so much lately which is uh, which is pretty really good um but maybe I, I guess on an individual level i mean have you guys been using cash during this period Kat, how about you start
3: so I think I might be one of those very strange, weird people who prior to this year, very much used cash for budgeting. So I would take out a set amount at the start of each week. And that would really help me know what to spend on a discretionary basis. So for everything from morning coffees to after work gin, and then obviously sort of March, middle of March arrived in the UK, and we went into lockdown and absolutely no one wanted your hard cash. And I have stopped, there are still a couple of things I get Farm eggs, because I live in the middle of nowhere, so I pay cash for those. But otherwise, the sort of small purchases, which I always used to, from a financial planning perspective, try to avoid, you know, tapping on for one thing here or one thing there I used to avoid on the card has become just an inevitable part of life now. Mm.
1: It is interesting, isn't it that that uh, you know uh, self budgeting cycle for those things does dramatically change when you uh, when you're not sort of measuring the the, the weightiness of your wallet when uh, at the end of the month essentially, isn't it? But uh, Adam, how, how have you guys sort of seen? I mean, both from a personal perspective, but also from current perspective over this period, has the the pandemic sort of changed people's behaviours a little bit? Uh,
2: yeah, yeah, I'd say a, a bit. I'd say. Uh for one, I, I'm actually one of the also one of those weirdos who uh, actually carry a lot of cash, but don't spend a lot of cash, right? It's like it's like. Uh, I think
1: Adam, you you might have made yourself a target then. If any if anybody's listening to this, Adam doesn't carry too many large bills on him, so uh, don't don't approach him in the street. It will be my advice.
2: Yeah, I've, I've, i I among a group of you know my millennial friends, right? Uh, have come somewhat become the de facto uh, ATM. Right, uh, and so at this point, if I don't have cash, my friends are very disappointed in me. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it's something that doesn't get used uh, nearly, uh, nearly as often as, as as it used to. Right, uh, I'd say uh, for for our members, uh, you know, we launched uh, cash deposits uh, earlier this year as, as as a feature. Right, so if you're you're a current member, uh, we have something like you know seventy thousand locations, retail locations uh, that you can go in. Uh, you give the the it's typically like a cashier. Uh, maybe at like a pharmacy um or a 7-Eleven, something like that. You give them the cash, uh, you they scan a barcode on your phone and it goes directly into your account, uh, which, which is a pretty cool experience. Um and almost instantly uh we saw millions every single millions on a weekly basis being being deposited in. Uh that that was essentially cash that was otherwise, you know, not being realized either by us or by the system or or et cetera. So I think when you talk about uh, even though we have a very young demographic uh, there's still a, a large portion of them that get paid heavily in tips um, and, and and other cash wages right uh, that can kind of happen in, in an informal economy and so I think among maybe the uh wealthier uh dem- demographic like kind of the wealthy millennial demographic it's almost extinct uh but I think then you have uh either older folks who still still hold on to cash and use cash and then uh some 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 lower income, service sector folks who get paid in cash. So I think there's a little bit of a mix there.
1: Yeah. I mean I'm very much a, you know, digital tap spends on things, but I was a good boy scout, so I do carry a 20 pound note around with me for just in case, Do you know what I mean? Just because I living in uh, Adam this is going to mean a lot less for you, but living in remote England in Norwich then, you know, there are some places where you don't even have mobile signal, never mind uh, never mind tap and pay, but uh, Chris, I mean it feels feels like a I guess, you know, Physical cash has been sort of hanging on for a little while, hasn't it? But I mean, has the pandemic and being sort of forced to use tap to pay and, you know, some changes around that, do you think some of these behavioural changes will actually stick with people?
4: Well, I mean, there's been behavioural changes in almost every country that are pretty much consistent, which is when the lockdown first occurred in February, March time, depending on where you lived, uh, most people, the first thing they did is went and got a load of cash from the cash point because they felt they had to have that in reserve just in case. And then they discovered that it was completely useless because they were stuck at home and they couldn't use it. Um, So they ended up downloading mobile banking apps and using digital banking services much more extensively than they ever had before. So digital banking has gone through Um, through the roof this year in terms of downloads and usage, and cash has gone through the floor. Even in countries like Germany, which are very cash-oriented, cash usage has gone consistently downward. I think it's down, I don't know how many percentage points, but I'm guessing 40 or 50% this year. Um, What's interesting for me is personally... I'm living in Poland, which is a very contactless card-oriented society anyway, and so the fact we can use contactless cards everywhere means cash is not needed. The trouble is that it's contactless cards plus PIN for purchases over about $10, and putting a PIN into a PIN machine really makes me feel like vomiting right now because you know I, I, I just, I'm just aware of all the germs that are on the PIN machine, and so... There are behaviors that are changing. They're not necessarily changing permanently, but I think the biggest permanent change is digital relationships and digital services. And this is something that I'm talking and writing about all the time, as you know, because 2030 has kind of been delivered in 2020. The fact that we've all massively rushed towards using Zoom. um, The number I consistently bring up in presentations is Zoom had 10 million active users in December 2019. And had 300 million active users in april 2020 and now i find it intriguing because the behavioral change is actually starting to be quite annoying and that you know quite often i don't want to be visible on a video call i just want to be there as a voice and so i turn off the video and people say are you hiding something chris where are you what are you doing and it's like well, I'm just relaxing. I, you know, I'm just talking. And it's kind of this new, there's a new etiquette that's needed for digital relationships. Um, it's much wider than just in banking and payments. It's the whole way in which we are using technology in 2020 to talk, you know, in February 2020, if I was on a conference call using my phone, people didn't mind. Now, where are you, Chris? Turn on your video.
1: And that's just our board meetings, Chris, isn't it? So uh, <laughs> I, I think it's uh, I think it is interesting though because, like you say, I think that has changed for for the for good and bad, hasn't it? I mean, for for good, you can talk to anybody anywhere and have a you know an, an empathetic uh, conversation because you can you know ninety nine percent of communication is is actually sort of. Uh, listening and seeing how things are sort of landing with people, isn't it? So whereas actually the phone, I mean, I think I've probably only made 10 phone calls since March, you know, and most of well, those have been to the market. The biggest point frankly.
4: here is, and it comes home to me regularly, is first of all, I'm far more connected with friends and family this year than I've ever been in my life because we're talking all the time. Secondly, I'm communicating globally from my home office all the time. And so the fact we're not traveling is actually – not a problem because we've got the internet and as long as wi-fi the internet the mobile network is running then we're all pretty good
1: yeah i agree all right well um i think in terms of the customer behavior stuff i think it's going to be super i mean we're a long 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 way from normal aren't we in terms of uh, where we are now and i think we're probably a long way from finding what that sort of new normal will be uh, on the other side of this, everybody's got a couple of injections to go. And then let's see what uh, what the, the behaviors we've got over this year, whether they stick or not. And um, I, I guess if we take a little bit of a look at some of the organizations that um, had a bit of a pivot during this period as well. So, you know, even fintech organizations that are I think, you know, born digitally, natively digitally, uh, often have uh, uh, of, of needed to sort of pivot strategies and uh, under these periods of time. Uh, first up, we saw Tully, the UK based financial management app. So it launched a COVID-19 relief and well-being network in April. This is a free to consumer digital outsourcing service to help companies register and validate customers who apply for financial relief. Um, that went down really, really well. We also saw over in the uh, UK, everything that happened with C-bills in terms of the uh, loans that are being paid out. We saw Funding Circle do it. We saw Starling Bank, uh, as well as um, obviously a lot of the the mainstream banks as well. It it seems like financial services, uh, not just in the UK, but in the US, um, really sort of pivoted very quickly to be able to both cope with the world in terms of uh, craziness of sending hundreds of thousands of uh, tower PCs home so people could work at home uh, to really supporting customers all the way sort of through this one. So, uh, you know, it, it did seem like um, I'd say the fintechs that were used to working remotely had a little bit of an easier uh, run on this one. But um, Kat, what's it been like for the for the nutmeg team working remotely?
3: So I think we were one of those that were fortunate. We had the office was sort of full on the Monday here when um boris johnson in the uk announced that everyone who could work from home should and everyone then proceeded to sort of stand up pack up their stuff and and leave and actually the vast vast majority of us haven't been back to the office since that day i think um in terms of processes and how that worked we had a really smooth transition i you mentioned earlier about having to sort of fo- um close down call centers. Now we have a customer support team and also lockdown in the UK set in in the busiest two to three week period in the year for us as a tax business, because it was just before the end of the tax year. And it was really beneficial that we could have a team who could just turn up on the following tuesday morning and log in from home and as chris was saying provided your internet and your mobile phone provider and all the rest of it was still working your experience of a customer support at nutmeg didn't change i think the only sort of teething issues was we had a couple of uh a couple of employees in roles that we wouldn't have expected who didn't take laptop chargers home so got sort of three hours into day one from home and went ah yes I need to need to resolve that issue, Um, but otherwise, it's the transition for that has been absolutely fine. We were quite robust in our remote working. Anyway, we've always had some engineers who've worked from Spain or from uh, different uh, Portugal, different parts of continental Europe. We used to have a guy who worked out of the states and used to just slightly work a different hour. So, in that sense, we were very fortunate, which was good because it also struck at our busiest time of the year. And then added to that, there was significant market downturn in March. So it was a sort of perfect storm. If you were a business that wasn't fully prepared to be digital, we did see traditional wealth managers who hit points where they sort of said, oh, actually, we can't send stuff to customers or provide them with updates because there isn't anyone in the office to print things out or put envelopes in the post. And We had not met customers who can log into their app and see exactly what's going on and speak to us. So that that was the sort of extremes of where we saw wealth management investment in the UK.
1: Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? In that period as well, with markets changing, people would want more access to understand what's happening with their investments, right? So it's uh, it's not yeah. like you can sort of go a, a, a nice man will be there in potentially
3: November. Uh,
1: yeah. We hope, uh, but uh, you know that that doesn't sort of uh, cut it, does it? In terms of uh, being able to get access,
3: absolutely not. And you know, they so please send us a post, and someone might open it at some point is not really where you want to be, particularly if it's your your pension, your retirement fund, whatever it is that you're doing. It's You want the reassurance of being able to speak to someone and not when they get around to installing a computer software at home that allows them to do something slightly more one step further ahead than you know a fax or a carrier pigeon, I think, for some.
1: I mean, it has been interesting. I mean, Chris, the uh, I, I guess we have seen a lot of big banking organisations almost realise in this period that the thing that's been holding them back predominantly has been themselves, though, also, right? Because they, they have been able to make uh, pretty significant operational changes in this period of time, which they probably, for some reason unknown to them right now, has been resisted for almost a decade. So, uh, you know, do, do you think the the banks will learn a lot from this in terms of being able to really sort of spring into action?
4: Oh yes, Um, but you know, if you go back to March, April time when the lockdown first occurred, um, first of all, you had a lot of people talking about a V-shaped recovery, or a U-shaped recovery, or a W-shaped recovery. But I consistently now talk about a K-shaped recovery, with the upper part of the K being those who were digital and ready to be digital, and the down part of the K being those who were physical and oriented to be physical and I often come back to the story about the fact I haven't spoken to one of my bank um, service providers since March the main reason being is that they were dependent upon a physical contact center offshore in india that closed with four hours notice and they couldn't obviously recover from that because there was no onshore call center and even if they if they, even if there was one everyone was now at home so because they were so oriented to that physical contact center for customer support, they've been a complete disaster in 2020. And they are on the downside of the K. The upside of the K, I would say, are some of the challenger neobanks. But even there, there's been some interesting research um, I picked up on a report by Brandzai that shows that quite a few of the mobile-first digital challenger banks uh, have also seen customer sentiment go significantly downward. And the main reason being is because there wasn't a, a call center. There wasn't a human to talk to. And so I think that's been the really key thing this year. And um, in fact, I'm just releasing some research tomorrow, um, which I call the Omni-Axis Future. You know, I, I hate the word omni-channel because it's got channel in it. I hate the word channel because to me it's like recording or taping something. We did that last century. We don't do that in the 21st century. The omni-access future says that the customer has to have the choice of how they want to deal with you, and you have to be consistent in that service across however device or service that they and platform that they're using. So if, if you're a digital-first mobile challenger bank, you must offer service that the customer sees as human which might be call center service if that's what they want but equally if you're a bank and a traditional incumbent bank with branches you can't rely on offshore call centers and branches for service you must also offer digital first services and the omniaccess future says that really you have to give the customer the, the, the choice they want and i think that's been a big learning this year for the big banks and also for the challenger banks Mm.
1: it's interesting isn't it as that power sort of shifts and competition is greater in the market then uh, you know it seems obvious when you say out loud doesn't it give the customer what they actually want but uh, but that power imbalance for quite a few you know quite a few decades really has meant the uh, the customer got what they were given didn't they but uh, i mean speaking of customers adam uh, and i guess on that k as, as chris was sort of describing it yeah um, i mean you guys announced recently you've doubled your customers in the last six months so you're you're definitely on the upward side of that k
2: uh, yeah, yeah, certainly. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, there's a, there's a lot of things that I think people, um, that, that, that kind of this entire pandemic has, has made people realize they, 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 they miss as, as well as people, things that people, people feel they don't really need anymore. Um, and I think, uh, you know, being connected and seeing people and doing all that and live events and all these things that we really enjoyed in person, right. That we aren't really doing anymore. Those are all things we want to go back to. Uh, I don't know if anybody's really eager to go back to deposit a paper check in a branch. Right. That's that's not really uh, something that, uh, you know, and, and this is goes goes for all generations. Right. Where it's like, oh, well, now the branch is closed. I guess let me try to do this thing on my phone. Oh, this is way better. Right. So, so, and and sorry, so I, Adam,
4: a- uh, what's what's a check? Sorry. <laughs> I mean, you say that.
1: You say that we still have people send us checks, like like it's kind of crazy. I don't mean my nan; I mean companies in America. Like it's still, it does still happen. So uh, I think I think they do it purely as a way of keeping the money in their bank account longer. I think that's that. No, I
2: mean, and and, and it and it does still happen. I mean, we, we have a remote deposit check feature, in which 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 is heavily utilized. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, our, our entire ethos is right. We we get people their money kind of as, as fast as possible, and so uh. We've what you're saying about people holding people holding on to your money a little bit longer by, by setting checks. You're you're not off. Uh, fortunately, we are. Our, our business model is structured so that uh, you know we're incentivized to get our, our customers their, their their money quickly, so they can then go spend it quickly, and that's essentially uh, how, how how we make money. I think uh, you know. But one to, to to Chris's point, um, you know, it's not just like oh well, we don't have branches. We take something away, and that 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 doesn't make us any better, right? We then do all these other things to to make up for that right we have 24 7 customer support um we we have we have we have an in-app experience where it's you know you don't even need to leave uh to to get support uh again 24 7 coverage on social we can't just take away one form of communication which is which is branches uh and then just assume we're better because of that no that would make us worse right Uh, we've had to we've had to invest in and in a much more robust experience now fortunately that's something that we've always been in, right? It's not like we had branches and we had to close them. So we are set up for for success from, from the beginning there. And yeah, and it, it's shown in terms of growth, right? Uh, you don't want a global plan to be the thing that validates your business model, but uh you know that that's that's certainly been the case for us in 2020, where you know, I mean we 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 hit a million customers in June and, and have since doubled that, right? So you're talking about uh pretty exponential growth. Um but in 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 while while 20 while 2020 has accelerated that, uh, it's you know I don't want to put too much emphasis on 2020 because uh, I think 2021 will be actually a much bigger deal. Uh, so that's uh, that's worth noting.
4: I, did, I didn't want to keep interrupting, but just going back to the check thing, because it, it, it kind of illustrates the madness of 2020 and 2021. Um, you may have heard, Adam, that um, Britain's going through something called Brexit, um, leaving the European Union. So I don't know if you saw the headlines, David, but um, the UK banks are closing down the British account holders who are living in Europe accounts and issuing them checks with the balance to sever their account. And many European countries, particularly in the Northern European uh, area, like the Netherlands, will not accept a cheque. So in the Netherlands, they banned cheques in the 2000s and they've now banned international cheque deposits as well. So it's a really interesting situation around what's happening this year because not only do we have obviously the pandemic, but also there's the political turmoil both in the US and Europe that's taking place, which you can't ignore.
1: Hmm. And, and obviously, I mean, as you say, there's there's a, a shortage then of getting proper money back into the the circulation, essentially, isn't there? In terms of that side of things, I feel like cash converters is going to get a real hammering. You know, like uh, it's going to be a lot of uh, high high-profile checks turning up into that. Adam, that means nothing to you. I pre- appreciate for our international audiences, but uh, it's funny in the UK. Cat will back me up on that one. Uh, I mean, it, it is interesting. I mean, Adam, the the US. Uh, like say, uh, not on just the Czech side of things, but the US this year, despite everything with COVID, seems to have, a, have had a, uh, a real sort of um, awakening when it comes to the, the, the fintech side of things. You know, very much the European challenges were sort of leading the way. But I really do think the, the US with you guys and Chime and Varo and a few others, you know, it really does feel like the the, the tides have sort of turned to, to US challenger banks.
2: Uh, yeah, it's hard, 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 hard to argue with that. Right. Um, you just, just, uh, what, two weeks ago we announced, uh, we raised our series C, uh, 131 million at a, at a $750 million valuation. Um, and so that's, that's certainly, um, again, via, via, via the growth we've experienced has, has been a boom to all that. I think when you look, when you look across the board, right, it's, uh, it's, it's this change in behavior, um, that we're seeing where, um, there's 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 so much uh, inertia that, that exists with, with with old behaviors, right? Like I and 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 I, I may be you know banking with this bank around the corner, you know, uh, and and they've been screwing me for ten years, but I know they're around the corner, right? And I know they'll they'll, they'll, they'll be there for me. And I know I could at least scream at a human being there and get my money if if, if I need it. Um, and and there's a level of trust there uh, that us as fintechs have had to build. Um, and 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 2020 has been a really good opportunity for that. Uh, I mean, we talk about uh, you know here in the U.S. we had stimulus checks. Um, current, we were really proud. Our current customers were actually the first people in the entire country to get their stimulus checks, right? And and at a time where people really needed money uh, to be able to do that and deliver that faster, that was an opportunity for us uh, to build trust that otherwise, you know, may may, may have not been there un, under normal circumstances. So uh, it's kind of like that that trust gap. Uh, while we were making progress on it, it just accelerated, and I think that that goes goes for 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 lots of fintechs. Um, it's, it's certainly been, been, uh, uh, you know, you mentioned the the word pivot. Uh, it's, it hasn't really been that, I think for, for most fintechs here, certainly not us, it's been an accelerant. Uh, it's kind of more, more, more of this, more of the same strategy. Um, so we've we've been, well, I
1: was just going to say, I think it's really interesting in the U S because it just shows, I mean, with 2 million customers, that size of valuation, the opportunity in the U S market is just insane, given the size of. The, the base, you know, and, and actually um, being able to, and we, we to a certain degree, Chris, I mean, we've seen this in China, haven't we? When an idea takes off, it's like little, little older, than the UK, there just isn't enough people. Whereas actually like in, you know, very large geographies, you know, China, the US, when something takes off and you can acquire another million customers in, you know, six months time, and that's sort of kicks off the real sort of curve that you want to see. Um, the investment potential and the scaling potential is really, really exciting.
4: I'm often asked why um, Europe doesn't have a Alibaba or, or an Amazon, and the answer is scale. Um, you know, the US market's 350 million people, Chinese market is 1.2 billion people, the Indian market is 1.4 billion people. When you have that opportunity to, for a platform to scale, then you really do have this amazing. Um, capability to change things, but the dynamics are very different. And again, I always talk about this a lot. In that having mentioned checks, you know, the U.S. market is very retro twentieth century, which is why uh, Current and Chime and others actually have a great opportunity to shake that market up because it really is still very retro compared to what you see happening in India and China. Um, and it was interesting with the uh, Ant Group. IPO, which uh, i spend a lot of time talking about because um, the difference in China is that um, the Chinese government has to give you a tick to operate. Uh, in, in the US and Europe, you don't have to have a tick. I mean, yeah, you've got to be regulated and comply with regulators. But um, it's really interesting because at Jack Ma's approach was to say, let's just do it and then say sorry afterwards. And Having done that, he's now discovered that the PRC and President Xi are saying, no, you can't do that. Um, So this big change is taking place. And what what I like about all of this is the fact that we're moving to a whole new world. Um, And the latest thing that I'm I'm talking about, for example, is Stripe and Stripe Treasury uh, and Stripe Capital. And the fact that they're making this bid to become a platform of platforms, so merchants sit on Shopify, that sit on Stripe, that sits on the banking system, and it's all API in a jigsaw integrated together. And for me, that's a phenomenal transformation that's definitely happening this year.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's exciting to see those things play out, isn't it? The the sort of uh, we've talked about unbundling along period of time but the players who are essentially sort of pulling those building blocks back together are not the same players that they were before and we've I think we've seen that in other industries
4: haven't we as as it plays out. I think a critical point and I'll be interested here with Kat and Adam on this one is I keep saying banking as a service can only be provided by banks because banks have licenses from governments that means they can be trusted as intermediators of stores of value and exchanges of currencies and value but the bank doesn't have to play a role outside that. So what you see happening is, you know, uh, Stripe with Goldman and Citibank and Barclays is saying, we'll be the guys who do all the payment stuff, and we can do all the capital and lending and credit and other services and enable Shopify and other people to do this. And so it's like an API jigsaw puzzle. That's what banking as a service really is, with the bank with the license at the core of the jigsaw puzzle, but all these other guys doing all the pieces that matter.
3: Hmm. Yeah. yeah, and I think sorry, I was I was to I was going to say I think you've definitely seen that in elements of the financial services sector, but outside of your day to day banking already. For example, you know you can have your pet insurance can be with John Lewis, or you can have a credit card which sits slightly in the back end of your credit card is all run by Mastercard or whoever it is, and the front end is you know it could be John Lewis, it could be Debenhams, it could be whoever it is. And I do think that element of who is on the front end versus who is on the sort of back end without getting overly technical will start to play a bigger part. And some of that comes down to what Adam was talking about. And Chris, I know you touched on this as well. And that's trust. And that's the brands that you trust and the brands that you like. And what does that look like? And actually, if you... If you are a very loyal customer to a brand that hasn't traditionally done banking, but you have no reason to doubt that if they got into it, they'd do it well, you'd still get the the customer service, you'd still get the, the loyalty in the brand that you protect. And I do think that will be an interesting development, especially as some of those stores or may operate in a traditional their home market sector may be going through significant changes i mean we've definitely mm. seen significant changes in retail sector in the uk and i mean just the last week and a half but i don't think we've we've seen the end of it
1: well as you say i mean and probably moving on to one of the the, the next things that have definitely been happening in in this year is is bass like bass has just blown up hasn't it all all around investment usage uh, mainstream people getting involved in it. Uh, you know, we've seen as, as you sort of touched on, Chris, Stripe, you know, we've seen Grab kind of get into this in a major way, Apple Lyft, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, this is a, an industry that's that's estimated to, be, estimated to be worth $3.6 trillion by 2030 in terms of the opportunities that'll facilitate. And that is just insane, isn't it? So, you know, Goldman Sachs are getting into it. We've got Solaris Bank raising more and more money. We've got Griffin raising 6.5 million to kind of get into the game. I, I mean, Chris, I mean, I think you rightly have, have said to me in the past, you've been roughly writing about uh, uh, Bass longer than i've had hot dinners i think was essentially how you wrote, put it to me um but uh, but i mean why is this place getting so big is it because is this a is it a fundamental breaking down of the bits that the banks are doing themselves and the bits that other players are bringing to it because i guess in that scenario as you were referring to a second ago you know the, the banks are really the person just holding the regulatory burden and paying upfront to go and get the right licenses is everybody doing all the other
4: bits around the sides? Yeah, I mean, there's a number of factors here. So I started talking about banking as a service probably mid-2000s in my presentations, and then I wrote about it in 2008 quite extensively. And so I claim to be the guy who is the father of that space. Um, I'm open for contention. Um, But what's interesting for me today is that um, the banks, because they're led by bankers, do not understand the internet, the platforms, the open networking and open banking opportunities. And what's been happening, and a good illustration of that is 2020, that during the summer of 2020, you saw many big banks making cloud announcements, that they were committed to cloud, they're moving to cloud. And I keep saying, because I know these banks, they're putting cloud on top, they're becoming cloud-based, but they're not cloud-native. They're putting digital on top, but they're not digital at the core. They don't understand what the technology platform structure of BAS is, for example. So their version of banking as a service is they develop it all themselves and then offer all of their APIs to everyone else, rather than saying, these guys, like Stripe, have a better API than we have. Let's partner with them. Uh, Now, that is starting to change, but when you look at who's... Taking the opportunity. I mean, Goldman Sachs, to be honest, is doing a great job. And the reason they're doing a great job is they weren't in any of the commercial and retail banking space before the mid 2015s, 2010s, rather. You know, Marcus is a new, you know, clean sheet of paper offering that they launched with no legacy. And that's the critical difference. that The old banks with their legacy thinking are trying to evolve to be digital and put digital on top and become cloud-based. They're not cloud native, not digital at the core. It is
1: interesting, isn't it? I mean, we, we saw uh, Deutsche Bank, you know, was it four or five years ago come out sort of saying they're a technology company. Yeah, I think it was this week they've announced the, you know, Google are going to be picking up all of our you know, back-end technology and helping us transform. So, I mean, a more Uh, realistic statement.
4: uh, When you you mentioned Deutsche Bank, and they just announced they're moving to put all of their core systems onto Google Cloud, uh, with Google at the heart uh, of their core systems, I said, I hope the heart's still beating. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, they've still got a lot of customers, haven't they? And still got a very big brand. But uh, you know, it's, uh, you know know—I've seen—I've uh, seen patients have very large heart attacks and come back from it. You never know what happens, right? But uh, and, and maybe it's a uh, similar to what we're saying with the the best thing—it's people realizing what they need to be great at and what they need to work with other people to be great at as well. You know, if you if you're a bank and Google's powering up all of your capability. You know, given how good that they are at building software, that might be cause for, uh, uh, you know, a better recipe for success than many IT boards that I've seen that are really convinced that thing that those current guys, they've got a great idea, but I'm pretty sure we could build all that stuff. And it's like, no, you couldn't. Like, don't pretend. Uh, so at least admitting that there's a, uh, a better way is uh, probably a sensible step. On that note, guys, we're going to have to uh, have a little bit of a break and go and hear from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Jack Henry Digital, the pioneers of personal digital banking. They are reviving the vision of financial institutions being on first-name basis with customers by offering a platform for personal, human-centered services that put the customer first. Your customers experience immediate accessibility, while your employees get cloud-based, core-connected tools to offer service at the moment of need. To learn more, explore the team's latest insights at jackhenrydigital.com. This episode is also sponsored by Pento, the UK's first automated payroll platform. Say goodbye to clumsy spreadsheets, endless emails, and external payroll providers and manual payments. Pento lets you run payroll just in a few clicks. It calculates taxes, integrates with platforms like Xero, and makes all the payments and reports to HMRC and pension providers for you. Go to pento.io forward slash insider to run payroll for free for the rest of the year. That's pento.io forward slash insider. Thank you very much, guys. And on with the show. So, I mean, no recap of 2020 really would go uh, a- a- according to plan without sort of talking about Wirecard, really. Uh, and uh, very much that is probably, I mean, if they were going to do it in one year, doing it when there's a global pandemic might just, you know, just try and slide it in there. But no, they didn't get quite get away with that one, did they? So the Wirecard scandal uh, is, I think, a, a, a great Netflix series waiting to happen. But uh, what happened was... Uh, a series of accounting scandals that resulted in an insolvency of Wirecard, the German payment processor. Uh, The allegations of accounting malpractices have strailed the company since early days of its incorporation, reaching uh, a peak in 2019 after the Financial Times published a series of investigations and internal documentation. Uh, on the 25th of June this year, Weikard filed for insolvency after revelations that $1.9 billion was just missing. Uh, This led to the termination and arrest of its CEO. Uh, Since then, Rails Bank have bought Wirecard's UK business and Brazilian operations. Uh, SyncPay have bought Wirecard's North America. And Spanish lender Santander is paying about 100 million euros for Wirecard's core business in Europe. So the the bones has very much sort of been picked on that one in terms of getting it there. But um, I mean, it's Sort of one of those stories where there's there's sort of no smoke without fire. I think on this one, given there's been sort of warning signs or concerns for such a long period of time. But uh, what what was your uh, sort of initial reactions when this one happened? I mean, somebody losing nearly two billion euros—that's a pretty difficult uh, difficult thing. I'm not sure I'd get that one past my CFO, to
4: be honest with you. Like, uh, but Chris, what what did you think when uh, Card story broke? Well, first, um, I should say that. Dan McCrum of the Financial Times deserves an investigative journalist award for being the dog on this story from day one. I mean, he really has digged deep and found over and over again evidence um, that showed that Wirecard were misreporting their results, even when the German authorities were threatening to throw him in jail. So well done, Dan. Um, you know, it's it's been an amazing story because Wirecard... Until the, um, the stuff hit the fan, was like the fanboy of the our world. I mean, we all thought Y-Carb were great, um, really great fintech success story, uh, particularly a European one that was you know as big as some of the US and Asian ones. Um, and I think it calls into focus a huge number of questions around auditors. You know, EY in particular are going to find that they're really going to be up against the regulators for the next decade in the same way that Arthur Anderson were after Enron. Um, It's it's as big as that story in terms of the mistakes that were made. And in particular, I I mean, Dan and the Financial Times are still on this story. So something that was breaking just over the last week is that um, Ernst & Young EY knew that there was inaccurate reporting of accounts in 2017 and before, but let the accounts go through as audited and signed off. And the partners in EY signed off on those accounts, one of whom is currently the head of accounting for Deutsche Bank. So you kind of go, this is not going to be good, guys. This is going to be something that drags on for a while. And for me, it's probably the biggest scandal of 2020 and um, maybe of the whole decade.
1: Mm Hmm. Yeah, it's it is an interesting one, and it did obviously. I mean, this year it kicked off a, an absolute spate of uh, going concern reports as fintechs were uh, sort of releasing more and more of their accounts as uh, as they required to. But uh, it, it is a, an amazing one that I, we should say there has been some good come out of this, I guess, in terms of like we say people like uh, Rails Bank, you know, Nigel Vadon really taking advantage of that situation. But for some of the fintechs that were relying on Wirecard, I mean, we saw curve. Basically, change platforms over a weekend. So, you know, Adam, to your point, when you've got technology and you're enabled by technology, switching out payment providers over a weekend is something that is actually sort of possible. So, uh, I'm not suggesting you run that as some sort of war games for your guys over the weekend. It, uh, it's not. It's not really the the pre Christmas treat that everybody's looking forward to. But uh, but just shows when you set yourself up with today's technology, it is possible, isn't it?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, having having that flexibility is it, it's huge for us. Um, and I mean, it, it's it's you, 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 we we were talking about banking, banking earlier, and, and who should be doing banking. And you know, for us, you know, we we, we partnered with licensing banks, and and that's really important because uh, we value them, and it's a strong partnership. And they do stuff that they're very good at. That frankly, we don't want to do right. Uh, lots 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 of regulation, lots lots of headaches, lots, all, all the licensing stuff there. Uh, and so we kind of we kind of leave that for, for for the banks. We don't really view ourselves as anti-bank. Uh, we view banks as, as 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 partners, right? And 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 we focus on 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 the front end experience. Obviously, I'm 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 VP of marketing. I I I care certainly about that. But I think it's also important from a branding perspective. Um, you know, we have uh, kind of this narrative of like, oh, everybody's going to become a bank. Uh, I think you know uh, there are certainly going to be more people providing financial services. Um, but from a consumer standpoint, uh, it's still very, very important. I think to be branded as a bank or, or you know, a banking service. Um, you've seen, you know, a number of you know tech companies and a, a number of everything from, you know, gig economy to the carrier, mobile carriers uh, offering offering banking services. Uh, but on the whole, it's uh, you know, if, if you were to describe a company, um, it's it's really important. Uh, from a consumer standpoint that they describe that as a bank because uh, that's where they're gonna put their money right yeah. uh, and, and particularly like again when i i i'm, I'm I know our demographic best but somebody who's paycheck the paycheck uh you ask them well where's that next paycheck gonna go um it's it's very important that it goes to, go goes goes to your bank
1: yeah i think there's a I think there's a whole episode we can do about trust in financial services and we should sort of come back and do that because I think as you say the you know, people trust lots of different organizations with different things but when it comes to your money and it comes to your well-being of your family and everything that goes with it then you know that that, that has such a, a different connotation in a, in a much more meaningful way doesn't it but uh, uh we should sort of not wanting to kind of stick with the doom and glooms but from one crisis to another one the the next story of, the, uh, of this year was very much about the FinCEN files leaks which uh, if you guys didn't catch this in September of this year more than 2,500 documents were leaked from FinCEN. So the US-based Financial Crime Enforcement Network is what FinCEN stands for. Most of the documents were files called SARs, it ain't that SARS. It's a different SARS. It is the suspicious activity reports uh, uh, that banks send to their US authorities between 2000 and 2017, raising concerns about what banks' clients might be doing. So the banks send these files to their authorities when they suspect that their, their customers might be up to no good. And whilst these files are not evidence of wrongdoing, they did raise some suspicions. Uh, this was quite an interesting one. I mean, Adam, how did this sort of land over in the US? Because, I mean, it felt like overnight, this was like the the hot. Oh, gods! This is going to be a a desperate chain of events that unspirals. But it, it seems to have gone a little bit quieter on this one right now.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, ter- certainly uh, from from a consumer standpoint, uh, it, it didn't penetrate there. But I, I, you know, I think it just highlights that that I mean, hey, each each bank or each fintech or banking service or whatever you want to call it uh, has a responsibility to to protect their members and the, the integrity of. Of their companies, right? And so I think that comes from uh, company culture from the start. Mm-hmm. And if you have the right company culture, that'll penetrate into all those areas. Um, so when when I when I when I hear about that, that's kind of um, that kind of what what is what jumps out to me.
1: Yeah, and and we've definitely sort of seen. I think uh, within some U.S. banks, you know, obviously in the past we've seen with places like Wells Fargo, we've uh, we've seen all sorts of weird shenanigans happening in terms of uh, account openings and all different types of things. I think, as you say, there's a there's a process and a cultural thing that actually, and even a uh, uh, you know incentives in terms of where you're placing the the right or the wrong incentives for people. But Kat, what, what did you think when this one came out?
3: I have to say it was one of those so previ- in a previous life I um I used to work for WIT, the consumer group and did a lot of stuff actually at the time on on push payment forwards and that kind of stuff and got way more involved with uh, know your customer checks is one of the compliance things in the UK around knowing what your customer is doing um, and what they're using money for. And very quickly, push payment frauds here are when you are encouraged or you're, you're fraud. There's a fraud or scan and you you send money as a, as a consumer to a bank account. And one of the things that we started looking at is sometimes how quickly that money bounced out of accounts, which came down to a simple... But as a as a regulated institution, and in the UK prides itself on its sort of financial regulation being up there and the best in the world, you should have pretty good idea about why your customers might need to be moving money through. And I guess it kind of falls into two halves. There's a little part of me that finds myself slightly reassured that there are a lot of reports that were, you know, banks at least were seen to be reporting the activity, which I guess. We should be a little bit pleased about that. They weren't sitting there going, oh, this is all a bit dodgy, but we're just going to hide it under the carpet and not do anything about it. And then what does it mean? And as Adam said, it's exactly about culture and company culture and how you move that forward to ensure that it doesn't become a sort of all-encompassing, all-engrossing scandal.
4: I hate to disagree with everyone, but it's not a cultural thing. It's a systemic thing. And the reason Mm -hmm. it's systemic is that – Every bank does their individual KYC, Know Your Client checks for customer onboarding. And there's politically exposed persons that exist within organizations that are not necessarily tracked in that process because it's through an intermediary of an intermediary of an intermediary. And when you get a SAR, for example, a suspicious activity report, they send that to the government and it's the government's responsibility then to make sure that that is followed up. So it's the link between the politically exposed persons, the organizations that they're nested within, the banks that they're dealing with, and the reports that are sent to government and how that's all put together, which is at fault. It's systemic. And this is something that's been around for ages. I I was dealing with one of the um, blockchain startups that's doing KYC as proof of identity, who told me there's over $2 trillion of money laundered through the financial system every year why how who you know how can that be true in the 21st century it's ridiculous and the reason it's true is it's a systemic issue in the industry and between government and business
1: Hmm. i mean does this does this not evidence that even more because essentially what it sort of feels a little bit like is like a lot of pieces of paper have been filled out but not to your point if and i think um the FCA have uh, said this recently, it's like only 1% of, of money laundering is being caught. So, but I mean, I've, I've worked in a, a big bank before. It can often feel like so long as the bit of paper is filled out, then it's okay. And it's like, but the process isn't fixed, you know, like, but the yeah. problem's not solved. So
4: um, many, many years ago, I was doing um, some process reengineering engineering work with a financial company. And it stayed with me ever since that the CEO of that company said to me that we've created a, box ticking culture and so there is a cultural thing as well i'm not saying it's not cultural but this box ticking culture combined with systemic structural issues and the criminal mentality i mean the other thing that's always uh, stayed with me is hosting uh, hackers and fraudsters and they always say to me that the issue is you don't think like we do you know you, you you're most people 99% of people are trusting of other people they don't realize that i might go and kill your grandma or my, my grandma you know because that's the way i I'm, i behave uh, i hope you're talking purely hypothetically
1: chris so i am talking as. okay i have killed my grandma Whew. i promise ah. Adam, Kat, I was a bit worried then. I thought lockdown had really got to got I mean, to Chris at that from point. I we've two but...
3: scandals to a very dark place. So <laughs>
1: <laughs> I know we really should have ended with a happy story, shouldn't yeah. we, at that point? But uh, but but uh, I think um, I think across all of these things, though, th- these are and actually, what we've seen throughout the year is that faced with problems, the industry can come up with interesting, innovative opportunities to fix them, can't it? And not definitely not sort of leaving the. How are we solving these things for for customers? So I mean Chris, as you say, if that is a you know trillions opportunity, there are lots of startups looking at these these problems now. It's just really I think particularly when we're talking about uh, the most regulated end of the regulatory part of the industry, then it requires regulators who will, as innovative as the fraudsters to to work with those organizations to really get these things to, to grips. And if if anything, actually, we've seen that, haven't we? We've seen the FCA, the PRA, now the US, Singapore, you know, MAS, HKMA, really getting out there to try and create that culture of innovation.
4: And I think it highlights where the sweet spot is for banking as a service because there are so many pain points in the system that are systemically inefficient and don't work that startups can fix those points they don't have to compete with banks because banks can still do banking but they can take all the friction and the pain points away from the process and the structure and that's where i think the huge opportunity is
1: Hmm, i agree so 2020 I guess in summary it's been a funny old year hasn't it really let's be honest there's been a been a lot of good things there's been a lot of kind of weird things we've been very much getting to grips with not seeing our friends and our families and our work colleagues over the course of the year but uh but I think all in all uh for financial services it's been a, been a bit of a mixed bag I have to say I think uh as uh we all probably agree we're hoping for a little bit uh planer sailing shall we say in 2021 but uh on that note we probably better wrap up the show thank you so much for joining us uh mr skinner where can people find out a little bit more about you
4: thefinancer.com every day
1: very good cat where can people find out a little bit more about you and the good work you guys are doing at nutmeg
3: uh so you can find us either at nutmeg.com or the nutmeg team on all the socials uh or you can find me if you've really bored, uh, at Manoir on all the social channels too.
1: Very good. Adam, how about you and Current? Where can people find out more?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you could search me up uh, on, on on maybe Twitter or LinkedIn. Probably most importantly, uh, you're going to want to go to current.com slash careers. Uh, we've got over 50 positions listed right now. Uh, we're we're growing really fast as a company. And so that's, uh, that's probably more relevant than talking to me, but I'm always out there. It's Adam Hattie if you really want to follow a boring Twitter.
1: All that funding, there's going to be some serious expansion going on. So there's going to be some fun jobs going there for sure. Uh, As for me, uh, you can find me over on LinkedIn is where I lurk most of the time these days. Uh, Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you've liked what you've heard, then subscribe to this podcast. And don't forget to leave us a review. It really helps us make it better every week. As always, if you want to join the conversation, you can find us on pretty much every social media channel at this stage. Search for 11FS or FinTech Insider. Or if you're really want to then just email us on podcast at 11 thank you very much for joining
2: us everybody goodbye